analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Another beautiful day shaping up here in Camel's got a packed show for you this morning. We're going to talk to the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses, Richard Truscott, in a little bit about job vacancies. Dive back into the whole crisis in the forest industry with Russ Taylor uh, from the Wood Market Group to try and get a better sense of what's going on there. And cardiovascular health with a doctor and professor up at TRU. But first, education. Real pleasure to welcome in the studio this morning the outgoing president of the Kamloops Thompson Teachers Association, Amanda Jensen-Labar. How are you? I'm grand. And Thank we you. also have the incoming president of the KTTA, Laurel McPherson. How are you, Laurel? I'm great. Thanks for having us. Yeah, good to see you guys come in. So, hey, listen, uh, number one, how do you feel about that whole hyphenated name thing, by the way? Are you getting used to that? Um, <clears throat> I think so. Good. Yeah, okay. when I phone the school board office and yeah. say it's, me you guys calling, are lucky. I don't. You're lucky because you both have two short names, so it works. That's true. My wife and I, if we hyphenated, it would be like 900 vowels and 14. Yeah, we talked about yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that, that's an aside. <laughs> no, I'm feeling good about it. Good. Yeah, I'm still married. <laughs> <laughs> that is always good. Yes. I would want to start the show off in a downer either, so there we go. Um, bargaining, uh, which started in February... Uh, was cordial, seemed to kind of be steaming along, doing really nicely. Uh, and then a couple of weeks ago, things took a bit of a nasty turn. Their class size and composition, the big stumbling block. Uh, the sense I get from BCPC is that uh, this thing should be wide open, should be able to negotiate everything from the ground up. Uh, the BC Teachers Federation sort of feels like, okay, we made a big win in the court. Uh, that should sort of be a quote-unquote floor and everything else because open for negotiation. Um, First off, I mean, your gut sense, it, it sounds like a deal by the end of June, which was hoped for, is not going to happen. And now the union's pushing for scheduled talks into October. Do you feel, Amanda, like things are in trouble, or do you still feel like, okay, we could kind of work through this and a deal is imminent? What's your gut sense telling you right now? Well, I think n nasty is is an interesting word. I wouldn't characterize the negotiations you don't That's have my nasty. sources, though, so... No. Well, <laughs> maybe I don't. Um, you know, from, from my sense, I think the BCTF is just very firm. We yep. cannot accept any concessions on behalf of teachers and on behalf of students. Mm. Um, I think, you know, a, a strategy of going into bargaining and saying, this is the floor, especially after 14, 16 years of, of hard-fought battles, you know, before the courts yep. on class size and composition, um, they should expect that the BCTF is going to want to hold firm to that language for students. All right. But then, Laurel, what do you what do you bargain, right? I mean, you have class size and composition. This language is old. It's from, you know, decades ago. And both sides admit there needs to be some modernization of what's going on there. But then you have the court win and, and you have all the, how do you, where's the starting point? Like, where do you, where do you say, okay, well, here's what's workable here. Here's what we talk about. Well, I agree that um, the language is old and it does need some tweaks. However, it doesn't mean that you revert back to the original before we even had the language where the class sizes were in excess of 30 students, which is on the table right now. Yeah. And that is going back significantly. Mm. One of the contentions, Amanda, is uh, a one-size-fits-all sort of province-wide something on class size and composition. Or districts having some kind of flexibility or say, like district to district to district. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Which Is there a preferable model there? <clears throat> is, it, is it maybe a hybrid of both? What, what? I think it's important to consider that every school district has 
um, has some significant needs that are different than other school districts. Yeah. I don't know whether or not the sort of one-size-fits-all would work. Um, I think when you compare Kamloops to you know Vancouver, Victoria, I, I think that it, that could be very beneficial for us, but would that work in Prince Rupert? Would it work in Haida Gwaii? I don't know. No, that. I think you have a point yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Um, just a final thought on bargaining. I mean, we're looking at talks going into the new school year. Historically, this thing has always ended in a strike or a lockout and some kind of difficulty, and then we have a deal somewhere along the line and students get impacted. Hopefully that doesn't happen, but is is there a, a rising concern from you that, okay, now we're kind of getting into mm, questionable ground here, or do you still feel confident that, that, I mean, it sounds like the new school year will open, then Glenn Hansman told me, quote-unquote, what happens in the fall after that is anybody's guess. So how do you feel just on a confidence level right now? Well, we have the ability to go into the next school year with the you know, carrying over the collective agreement that we we negotiated in 2014. Yeah. Um, I'm not concerned right now. I, I think there's a concern around um, collective agreement bargaining time every time. Yes. Um, but I, I I don't fear a strike Okay. Uh, right now. I feel confident. Do you fear a lockout, though? I, I do fear a lockout. <laughs> I, I don't like that. Um, I don't like the idea of that. I, I certainly hope that that's not going to happen, and, yeah. and I think that the government would be wise not to do that. Um, but they'll do what they'll do. Yeah. So, um, Moving on to other matters, uh, Valley View Secondary is getting a big expansion. That was, uh, that's was that been a long worked-for project. Yeah. Awesome for us. Great. We have something in the way in the capital needs side to address jam-packed schools and all this kind of stuff, which is a sort of associated class size and composition as a mitigating factor in what we're seeing out there. Um, the school district now is moving on to other matters. This month, they're going to figure out a new priority list. Uh, this time, it's not a, just a one to five list. It's across, you know, they get to diversify across different categories. So that's good potential for multiple projects. But um, for me, first, Amanda, what do you think the new number one priority should be when it comes to a capital project in this district? Well, first of all, I, j I just want to commend the staff um, at Valley View Secondary. Um, the announcement from Minister Fleming was very exciting, but what you know, a lot of the public didn't see was the work behind the scenes yeah. um, for you know the folks at, at Valley View. So we thank them so much. Um, I think that it's hard to answer a question about what should be the number one priority. Um, I think reopening recently closed schools, uh, I think, is a huge. Um, it's something that we've been the KTT has been on about since 2014, 15, yeah. 16. Um, but I think, you know, if we're talking about new schools uh, in different areas, I agree with, with Chair Carpuck. You know, we, need, we do need to look at new schools in Pineview Pine Valley, you know, even Aberdeen potentially. Um, but we can't forget that there are corridors for which we have schools that could be opened. Mm -hmm. um, and I understand that, that that's not a popular opinion. Um, amongst the school board trustees, but I'm going to continue to say that. We are will be pushing them to reopen those schools, and if not, we want to know why. Laurel, uh, on reopening schools, we, we have gone down that route. We've started to do that out in Westside. Um, where next? Well, there is a school um, at Pine Ridge that is uh, what could be used as an elementary school again, and there's also uh, Ralph Bell in Valley View that could be reopened. Uh, so we see those two as potential buildings that that could 
service a lot of students and could alleviate the pressure in the surrounding schools that are very full. My sense is Ralph Bell will be the next one on the table. Amanda? I certainly hope so. Yeah. yeah. We don't know that for sure, but... Yeah. What would you like to see? I mean, let's let's assume Ralph Bell is, is hitting the table next, which I think it will this fall. Um, if, if Ralph Bell is going to be taking care of whatever, what would be next in your mind? What does the district need to open next? Or well, the, there is, there's only other, there's only one other building. Which so is? That's an easy question. So that's <laughs> yeah. Um, well, but, okay. but I would say after reopening Ralph Bell, I think that the focus should be on a new school. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't say that Pine Ridge would be the next, the next. Uh, the next big thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say that. What do you do with South Cam? I mean, South Cam was the number one priority for a lot of years. Yes. And then the district said, no, nah, for whatever reason, they said, we need you to rejig. We want you to make Valley View the new number one priority. Yes. Big check mark there. Yeah. But now South Cam is, I mean, it was an old school decade ago. Yes, I went there. It was an old school when I was there. Is it time <laughs> to, to say, okay, we've done the Valley View thing. It's time to do the South Cam thing. I think that South Cam is a conversation. Um, it's hard to say if, South Cam should be the next big project. I think it is the next big project, um, but it, it's it's hard to say that when you know we we know that we're busting at the seams uh, yeah. in Aberdeen and and Upper Sahali. It's hard to say that when when we know that we need a new school. Yeah, yeah. the The district is looking at city data. Laurel saying, "Listen, we've got areas where there's pressure points. Aberdeen has been brought up, but Aberdeen is a big one." Uh, Kathleen Carpuck saying that's going to be a huge focus. City data saying it's going to explode with families. There's going to be a real need there. But also, uh, they're saying data that's looking like growth in in Juniper and growth in Valley View. Uh, what do you do in those areas? If if Aberdeen's going to be a priority, then what do you do in a Juniper or Valley View? I mean, we have the big Valley View secondary expansion, but what else would is required out there? Do we need to throw a school in Juniper? That would make the most sense if you if you could expand in Juniper. However, we have to look realistically at at money and and funding that the government is willing to give us. I think we have to address the real stressed areas, and we have to look at funding there. And then, I mean, as much as we dislike it, portables have to be utilized to the best of the, their ability. Like, And uh, we continue on to just uh, focus on where is the need, where can we get the funding, and, and move from there. Perfect. Ladies, a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. <laughs> Outgoing KTTA President Amanda Jensen-Labar, incoming KTTA President Laurel McPherson. Thanks to both. We'll take a quick break here on the Woodford Show. We'll talk about an increasing number of job vacancies across the country. Canadian Federation of Independent Business next. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Thank you for tuning in. Pleasure to welcome to the program the Vice President of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business for British Columbia and Alberta, Richard Truscott. Richard, how are you this morning? I'm doing well, Shane. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for taking a few minutes out of your day. Really appreciate that. No problem. So it looks like we have a weird discrepancy. We're, we're enjoying nationally uh, what is record low unemployment numbers, uh, mm -hmm. and yet you guys are pointing to job vacancy rates, which seem to be growing. 3.3% uh, uh, lately. That's what? Total of what? And according to your, to your numbers here, 435,000 jobs sitting vacant for the last four months. Uh, how do you explain the disparity, and what in the world's going on here? 
Yeah, well, it's, those are great questions. And in fact, uh, BC's uh, job vacancy rate in the private sector is even higher than that. It's 3.6%, representing about 70,000 jobs. So yeah, there's a lot of jobs going unfilled, uh, especially in small business. In fact, if you look at the, the numbers, the smaller the firm, the higher the job vacancy rate. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of different reasons for this, but two-thirds of business owners actually say that there's a, a mismatch in skill. They can't find people with the right skills. So you would normally think that, well, if there's a, a job vacancy, then employers should increase wages, which they do, um, and that should solve the problem. But in fact, some of this uh, looks like it's actually a skills mismatch, that employers aren't finding the right people with the right skills to fit into their business. Now, for a bigger business, they can, you know, there's lots of people that can cover off different roles. For a small business, our economists equate this to a puzzle. And so when you lose a puzzle piece, a small puzzle, uh, in a, like a small business would be, then that's a very unique uh, person and a unique set of skills and a unique person that you need to find to fill that, that vacancy, to fill that puzzle piece back in. So, yeah, this is an interesting dilemma that we're in, and uh, I think governments do have a role in terms of better training programs and that sort of thing. But, yeah, those are all interesting questions. Yeah, so how do we deal? I mean, if we're looking at it, looks like a, some kind of trades shortage. I mean, uh, I, look yeah. at the, I look at your numbers here, job vacancies by industry, uh, construction yep. leading the way, truck drivers out there, hospitality, agriculture. Uh, it doesn't seem yep. like we're short on positions that need doctorates out there, but we're looking at a skills trade shortage. How do you tackle that? Yeah, well, those are that's more good questions. The uh, and also personal services is, is another area, and that's actually uh, understandable because a lot of the businesses in that industry are very small. But for construction and agriculture and some of the other ones you mentioned, yeah, we're probably looking at a, a shortage of skilled trades. Uh, and so there's some things that governments can do. I mean, they can improve the delivery and online use of their uh, job bank, the new Canada job bank. That's something that still needs lots of tweaks to make it work better for employers and for people that are looking for work. Uh, they can streamline and simplify access for smaller firms to the temporary foreign worker program where they can show that there's a legitimate need and they've been trying to you know, hire Canadians but can't find them. You can also make it easier for Canadians to move across the country for work. I mean, there's probably a role for government in that sort of thing. And then the provinces can get together and do a better job of mutually recognizing each other's occupational certifications and, and th those sorts of things. And that would also help to uh, ease some of these, uh, you know, job vacancy issues that we're seeing right across the country. Is there roadblocks, Richard, for people who want to work in different provinces? If you're in Quebec and Ontario, is it a problem to go to an Alberta or a B.C.? Uh, for sure. There's often with some of those occupational uh, certificates that they're not recognized. If you you know achieve a certificate in Ontario, it's not recognized in BC and vice versa. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done on that front to break down some of those barriers. Uh, and, you know, this is an ongoing uh, frustration for business owners and for Canadians more generally that, you know, we're supposed to be an economic union and we're supposed to have, you know, streamlined and, and have all that stuff sort of aligned and figured out. And it's not. In fact, we're still a, a patchwork of 10 provinces and and a, couple, a few territories, and you know that's just not good enough. We need to find ways to break down these internal barriers to to labor mobility and to businesses doing uh, uh, their you know having operations across different provinces and having to deal with different regimes in each of those jurisdictions. So yeah, there's lots of things governments can do. Policymakers do have a role in this. I mean, ultimately, it's up to the employers to try to find the people and get the people. But you know, anything that governments can do to support that would be uh, certainly most welcome. Yeah, that's ridiculous in this day and age. Uh, how yep. much uh, in BC? How much? 
much does does affordability uh, play into it? Because I know, you know, down in Metro Vancouver, the biggest argument is, look, we got these crazy housing prices. We got yeah. we got an affordability. Wages have been mm-hmm. I don't want to use stagnant, but they've not been soaring either. They've kind of just been inching up really slowly. While all this cost of living stuff explodes, yeah. I imagine if you're a construction worker or a truck driver or whatever. Um, you have a hard time making an argument about going to Metro Vancouver and working that construction mm-hmm. job when you factor in the ancillary costs. Yeah, there's a lot of extra costs. The cost of living in those big cities is, is a lot uh, higher. Uh, and, you know, the affordability issue also affects small business because it's becoming incredibly uh, expensive and difficult to run a successful small business in you know, the lower mainland and some of those expensive uh, places, some of those bigger municipalities. And so uh, that is definitely an issue. Um, and we also find with the job vacancy rates that they're higher in some of the uh, medium size and smaller communities. And so in the north or in the interior, for instance, in Kamloops, the job vacancy rate is, is likely even higher than the provincial average. Uh, just because there's, there's smaller pools of people to draw from. And so in, yeah, lower, the lower mainland and in Vancouver, uh, it's higher cost of living, but it's also a bigger pool of people to draw from if you're looking to find employees. So it's a little bit easier on that side. So there's give and take here, but overall, smaller employers are struggling to find enough people. There is a role for governments to try to help on that front. And we certainly hope that we're, that, that our, our politicians, our, our public servants are looking at more creative ways of trying to solve some of these issues. Uh, last question to you, uh, the job vacancy number, you're obviously putting that under the spotlight. If, from your perspective, um, is, is this a concerning issue? Is this a troubling issue? Are we approaching it? I mean, if it keeps climbing, at what point does this go yeah. from, okay, listen, this is a disturbing trend to, holy crap, this is a massive problem we need to get on now. Where on that scale are we? Yeah, we're approaching the the holy crap part of the, the uh, spectrum. In the 15 years we've been re- uh, looking at this, uh, it's actually the highest we've ever seen. And so these are record numbers. Uh, and you sort of match that with what's happening in BC on the small business confidence side. It's a little bit odd because the small business confidence index is drifting down to you know out of the range, which would indicate a healthy growing economy. And yet we see the you know a, a relatively good economic growth. Um, I think some of the, what's happening there is the punitive policies from the BC government that have made it more difficult for employers to afford to hire and to grow and expand. And so we need to, that's a whole other set of issues. But um, yeah, this is the really difficult uh, nut to crack. And I hope that policymakers are going to work together on this to try to make it a little bit easier for employers to find the people they need to make their businesses go. Richard, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Thanks very much, Shane. Take care. All right. That's Richard Truscott. He is the vice president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business for BC and Alberta, highlighting a job vacancy problem, as you heard there. We'll take a quick break here on The Woodford Show. On the other side, we'll dive back into the crisis in forestry and sawmill closures. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. As you all know, the last three weeks have been absolutely brutal for this province's forest industry. Uh, Sawmill closures, curtailments, shifts cut back. It's been a madhouse. And I uh, wanted to talk about and un- get an understanding of what in the world is going on out there, bringing on a guy who knows a thing or two about the industry whose career has been steeped in it, the president of the Wood Markets Group, Russ Taylor. Good morning, Russ. How are you? Uh, good morning, Shane. Thanks very much. Well, sir, you have seen the writing on the wall for a long time about what we're seeing playing out now. And I know that 
Uh, this is not a, a news story in this province, but uh, how much bad news we've seen in such a short period of time. Uh, sawmill closures in Vavenby, uh, suspensions in 100 Mile House, uh, curtailments in uh, province-wide for Canfor, but also for uh, the sawmill down in, in, uh, in Merritt. Um, as far as the writing on the wall, uh, is, is there going to be more bad news, Russ? What's going on out there? Well, yes. Unfortunately, we're sort of in a in a in a perfect negative storm right now, where everything is going wrong. Uh, a combination of very weak uh, markets, just an oversupplied market. The uh, U.S. market's been saturated with uh, record levels of rain for forever, probably for at least six months, and uh, they're not building, so the wood's backing up. And uh, you know, the BC industry uh, over time it's become one of the high cost producing regions in North America in terms of shipping to the U.S. market. So you have these horrible cost structures, high, co- high cost structures, horrible lumber prices. We have a declining uh, fiber supply. And uh, so we all know, we, we've known for many years now that we'd see a continued erosion of sawmills uh, in the B.C. interior, mainly because of the, the raw material supply. And so that's exactly what's happening now. As soon as you get very weak prices, uh, companies have to make their decisions, uh, you know, which mills are we going to keep and which mills do we have to let go because of the wood supply and the weak markets are, are causing that. So uh, we're going to see more more ongoing curtailments, I think, for the next few months until the markets are, uh, re- rebound. And they are now already, but they've got a long ways to go. And uh, we, uh, as we forecast back in 2010, uh, we're now doing another forecast and we see another, you know, dozen mills closing in the B.C. interior in the next 10 years. It's not a good news story. As you mentioned there, uh, the two biggest reasons, lack of fiber supply and soaring prices. Uh, the BC government uh, is launching a, a renewal of the forest sector or something that's going to hopefully result in that. We don't know what the result there is going to be. But from your perspective, Russ, when you, deal, when you look at BC and you see these, these soaring prices that mills are contending with and you see the lack of fiber supply being exacerbated by things like the pine beetle, all that kind of stuff, what, if any, options are on the table to provide solutions? Well, this is this is a big problem. I mean, the, uh, the the timber supply issue is we've known about that. The logs, well, the log cost situation, it's soaring because mills that are still trying to operate are are, are bidding up the price of open market timber, and part of that's through BC timber sales, and BC timber sales prices go back into the lumber. Uh, the stumpage price formula, the law, the price the companies pay for the logs, and so that that's been going up, 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 as lumber prices go down, 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 and so it's it's a, it's a mess. So we have a a problem with probably the way it's set up. And number one and number two, we have this um, this uh, U.S. softwood lumber dispute with the Americans, and uh, we're at risk if we tinker with any of our forest policies that affect uh, the competitiveness of the industry. So it's a kind of a catch twenty two. We're stuck in many cases with with what we have and uh so that's a problem there's no easy solution that i can see uh in terms of uh log costs in the interior uh given the uh, the, the fiber supply shortages and the and being backed up against the uh, the americans how much a component would be getting a softwood lumber deal done with the states uh, i'm i don't think we're in any way near there yet but uh if that was to happen tomorrow how much uh, how much of a of a of a solution would that be in and of itself? 
Well, then the solution is going to be complicated because it's a, it's a negotiation, and uh, uh, we, we would probably get some sort of quota quota arrangement like we had in one of our previous uh, settlements, meaning you're allowed to ship so much volume up to a limit, and then you then you pay huge penalties. But that would at least put the industry on an even even keel, and we would know what to expect going forward. And the other part of it all is that uh, there's a negotiation around, uh, you know, what about the duties? Uh, who gets the duties? Usually we get a refund, and and so the companies, if they were to get a refund, we expect they would get part of it, not not maybe all of it. Uh, they could use that to reinvest in their mills and do other things. So that's sort of a that's kind of a it'd be a good thing to get out of the way, I suppose, but it would take a long time to get there. One of the usual routines when you see sawmill closures, and we're seeing it playing out in both Vavenby right now and in Hundred Mile House, uh, is the forest tenure. Uh, license sale. In a Vavenby example, the Canfor is looking to sell to Interfor its uh, its timber tenure for $60 million. Uh, then you put in some of the political components of that. We have this Bill 22 with the province uh, that demands community and First Nation consultation and actually gives the Minister a veto power. Um, as you're looking at this, how, how problematic or not is that situation? Well, you know, it it always sounds good in, in theory to do all the all these things, but uh, the more the the more the uh, the current government tinkers with uh, with policies and issues, uh, the less of a climate it is for investing in the BC forest industry. So, if you want to try and maintain investment, uh, Bill 22 is not going to help. It's going to be it's going to create more uncertainty, and perhaps yes, maybe some of that is needed. But uh, trying to uh, you know, implement it during a, a catastrophe right now with markets and so forth is going to really uh, disrupt some of the way the companies think, perhaps. So that's kind of the downside of it all. And and because it's such a, such a vague policy with no clear definitions, it makes it really hard for anybody to, to answer the question as to what does it all mean? We just don't know yet. Where do you see the next vulnerable point? We've seen uh, sawmill closures again in Vavenby, curtailments province-wide, 100-mile house, uh, if you were a betting man, where, where's the next bad news going to land in the province? Well, we're not we're not a betting man. We we know exactly where it's going to happen. We we've been studying this for uh, for ten years. So I mean, we don't know exactly which which mills, but we know where it's going to occur. It's uh, this has all been known for for ten years or longer, and, and it's just a matter of uh, you know who want, who's going to blink first. It's all about company strategies right now, unfortunately. Whoever's got whoever's in the worst uh, sort of economic situation with their timber supply and their mill is the next one probably to, to curtail. And so again, it's a it's a timing issue as to you know when it's going to happen and and how the companies uh, um, implement all this. But the companies don't want to close, and that's why they're you know some companies are, are burning a million dollars a day keeping their operations going. They don't want to lose their employees. They want to hang on as long as they can. So it's a it's a real tough situation. But as you're seeing, some companies Companies are finally saying, "Look, we better pull the plug now, at least uh, with curtailments or possibly with shutdowns, because you know we just can't go on forever like this, and we have to make some tough decisions." And that's what they're doing. This industry, as you know, has been a bit of a punching bag for a number of years now. It just seems like bad news is coming in droves, and I know the last three weeks have been brutal as well. In, in your mind, Russ, is this? I mean, I'm hearing words like crisis being thrown around out there now. Is the industry in real trouble? Is this a, a rough patch that we're going to come out of? Um, what's your thought as, as the overall vitality of the industry? Is it there or not? 
Well, this is a cyclical business. We've seen it, uh, I've seen it all my career, so this is nothing new, but uh, however, it's a bad one. And um, I mean, I mean, exactly a year ago today, we hit record prices. This week, we hit record prices. So it's cyclical. Now we're hitting horrible prices. So next year, we think will be very good. In fact, we think the rest of the year is going to be improving. And next year, with uh, hopefully with demand uh, picking up and staying stable, uh, we think it'll be a pretty good year. And and so we're not too worried about the the, the, the long term. It's just the short term is really really ugly. And uh, unfortunately, there's too much of the blame game going on. Whenever there's a crisis, everyone points fingers. And I see so many fingers being pointed in the wrong directions that it's it's too bad. But it's uh, it's you know and there's casualties as well. So it's just a matter of getting through. I think this this horrible cycle and uh, trying to get ready for, for for subsequent years. Russ, always a pleasure. Thanks for providing some insight. Appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure, Shane. That's Russ Taylor. He's the president of Wood Markets Group, providing, uh, you know, he's had the writing on the wall, I've said, since 2010, his market study, now doing another one to 2028, and he anticipates more sawmill closures to come. A rough patch, but also some silver lining in there. Good year coming next year, according to Russ Taylor. Take a quick break here on the Woodford Show. We'll talk cardiovascular health right after this. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Real pleasure to be joined on the phone this morning by the, uh, Dr. Mark Rakabowchuk from uh, Thompson Rivers University. Good morning, Mark. How are you? Yeah, very good. How are you? Good. So, uh, listen, this is, uh, according to the mayor, uh, this is Canadian Men's Health Week here in Kamloops. You're uh, an associate professor at TRU in Biological Sciences, and you're working on uh, some stuff sort of looking at uh, our inner health, how we work out, how our body reacts to certain things. Uh, when it comes to cardiovascular diseases and risks associated, uh, what do we need to know when it comes to how our bodies work? Um, well, basically, you know, cardiovascular disease is, well, pretty much up there with cancer as the number one killer of Canadians and pretty much any Western um, society across the world. So, Unfortunately, I tell my students quite regularly, like, you look to your left and your right, one of you is going to either have a stroke or uh, some sort of cardiovascular disease issue that's uh, going to take you out of commission for a while. So um, really the biggest thing in cardiovascular disease is prevention, and so a healthy diet and, and plenty of exercise is, is usually the kind of mainstay at this point. Is it has it gotten worse? Is this sort of the way it's always been? Are we seeing sort of a decline in, in how we're taking care of ourselves and, and thus the associated rise in, in sort of cardiovascular diseases and stuff? Well, I think the the number of cardiovascular diseases kind of almost become kind of a plateau in that, yeah, about a third of the population will, will unfortunately come to terms with having a heart attack and then um, heart failure or a stroke uh, later on in life. Um, that's pretty much been stable mainly because it increased for a long time because people became very good at diagnosing and identifying people who have these diseases. But um, over time, I mean, these are the kind of the lack of physical activity in, in most societies right now is really contributing probably to a bit of an uptick um, in, in the number of people with cardiovascular disease. One thing we're really becoming much better at is actually um, keeping people alive later on in life by using assistive devices like uh, defibrillators and things like this uh, to make sure that people continue to be um, able to function on a daily basis. But unfortunately, with that comes a lot of chronic issues like the fact that um, people in their older age are much less independent. Um, you have many more years where you're actually physically disabled, and that's unfortunately 
um, the biggest issue. And so that's where physical activity, either through doing a lot of cardiovascular um, endurance type exercise or now really um, focusing on the strength exercise is really helping trying to keep people independent way late into life. You have a quote here that, that caught my eye, and I'll just read it out here. It says, we're, mm-hmm. we're at the stage in research where we need to better understand what's going on inside the body to get an idea of what works for each individual. I thought that was kind of interesting. Is it, is it a blanket, one-size-fits-all? Listen, okay, I'm, I'm not doing the things I should. I need to improve my mm-hmm. diet. I need to head down to the gym and get some exercise, uh, that kind of thing. Or is it more complex than that for each individual? Yeah, I think in general, it's pretty simple. Most people don't get out and do enough in general. Um, But yeah, there are going to be some benefits that some people get um, out of strength training uh, more than other people. So there have been some some studies in the last couple decades where people look at people's genetics and they look at how they respond to the same amount of, of exercise training and found that some people who can train and do like 5K runs every day um, may not see improvements in their performance. Um, and then they actually need a lot more of that kind of exercise to see as much benefits as somebody else. So there is that uh, genetic predisposition to kind of, um, are you kind of an endurance adaptable person as opposed to a strength adaptable person? So those things are starting to be teased out um, in in some of the epidemiological data. Um, And so, yeah, we're kind of at the stage where we'd like to get people in uh, to the, into our lab or other labs and start to look at specifically how they respond to kind of a specific kind of exercise and whether they respond more favorably. In other words, do their blood vessels function better um, after one, say, 30 minute bout of exercise as opposed to um, other people who might do the same um, exercise bout and not really see a gain and so actually need to be working at a much higher intensity than somebody else. So those kind of individual um, prescription of exercise is kind of where we're heading, I think. And there are a lot of ways to do that. You can do it in a nice controlled environment in our lab or you can start to um, rely on, on different companies that have products on the, on, the, uh, on the market like Garmin and these sorts of watches that can kind of give you some indication of whether or not you're going to see a benefit out of what you're doing. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. I mean, it sounds like there's lots of room for improvement here, and we're going in a direction where people one day will be able to learn more about how their body works. But right now, today, other than doing sort of the, the usual stuff, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to eat a little more salad, going to bust down to the gym uh, more routinely, um, is there any other way that people can better understand how their body works to, to tweak or adjust what they're doing specific to them? Yeah, I think um, this whole, there's a buzzword called big data, and a lot of these companies are starting to come up with algorithms that actually kind of predict what uh, types of exercise you're going to benefit from most. But I think the biggest and most important thing is the the benefits for most people are in that getting to the gym first uh, or getting outside, especially in Kamloops, where we have plenty of outdoor facilities and great trails. Just getting out there at least two times a week and then increasing that to three times a week, you're going to see huge benefits no matter what you're doing. Um, and then it becomes a little bit more complicated as you try to go to four or five times a week where the benefits aren't as huge and that's where you're going to benefit most from kind of specific types of exercise that are probably tailored around your, your physiology. When it comes to people who need to make a change or, or where cardio, cardiovascular disease is sort of plaguing most? Is it is it everybody in general? Can you break it down 
to a, to a more specific sort of group? Is it is there more men as opposed to women? Is it hit people at a certain age group? Uh, what's the situation there? As in, um, I guess, yeah, I think once you get out of university, um, a lot of people have a huge change in life and lifestyle after that or out of high school. So that's probably when you start to see the bad habits start to creep in. The lack of time is usually quoted as being a really um, big barrier to, to getting enough exercise and regular um, physical activity. Um, and unfortunately, cities like Kamloops aren't really designed very well for us to walk to and from many places. And so that's going to be something that our city needs to really think about is how do we design our downtown um, and our, our kind of uptown um, up and our North Shore um, to make sure people actually can walk to the to the grocery store and uh, make those little bits of physical activity that we don't get in our day more, uh, more easy uh, to access. Um, so... Yeah, I think I might have lost your question in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you touched on it a little bit. I guess I was just sort of, when you look at cardiovascular disease, is it affecting mm. the population as a whole? Uh, we're all, I mean, I guess to a degree, we're all sort of exposed to this. But uh, do you see cardiovascular disease, you know, higher rates of within certain populations? Like, do you see it cropping up? Oh, right. Do you see it cropping up, say, more in men than women or in, in certain, that's, that's sort of what I was looking for there. Yeah, so um, when it comes to yeah, cardiovascular health, it's, it's definitely earlier in life that we start to see men dealing with high blood pressures and bad cholesterol levels. Um, and so that's usually in the late 30s, early 40s, when you start to see blood pressures starting to rise. Uh, women seem to be protected a little bit by their uh, estrogen um, and different sex hormones that kind of delay that until menopause and then there's a very very rapid rise in cardiovascular disease risk in women after menopause and so by the time you hit about 65 they have about the same risk of having a heart attack um, so yeah it's like women are delayed by about a decade and then they start to rapidly increase to about the same rates of say cardiovascular disease heart attacks and strokes as men by the age of about 65 um, and then there are populations within that that are more at risk um, people who have started to go down the line of being insulin resistant um, or starting to develop type 2 diabetes those people are at a, a very 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 high risk of having some sort of cardiovascular disease issue and generally that's um, their main issue is heart issues and, and strokes as they age um, and we're doing some research in that area we're looking at um, whether um, the inner lining of blood vessels, the smallest little um, cells in there are responsible for contributing to the insulin resistance. So we're doing some studies where um, we're looking at the movement of insulin across this layer of cells and whether or not the insulin can't get at the muscle where it'll stimulate uh, the muscle to take up blood sugar, which is a really important way of getting rid of blood sugar out of the body. Um, without that, when blood sugar is really high for a long period of time, it does damage all the smallest blood vessels and that leads to things like amputations um, later on in life um, issues with um, circulation neurological problems all sorts of issues um, so that's those are your kind of three issues aging uh, and then combating insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes fascinating uh, mark thanks so much for taking a few minutes and, and chatting about this uh, it sounds like uh, it's a bit of a growth industry. I get the sense from you that perhaps one day we're going to know a lot more and be sort of more in tune with what uh, what each of our bodies is doing as sort of part of our 
I don't know, health routine, I guess, or maybe part of our health interactions. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it was a pleasure to talk. And that was Dr. Mark Rakabochuk, who is an associate professor in biological sciences at Thompson Rivers University. And that brings an end to this edition of The Woodford Show. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL tomorrow, although the name of the show changes Inside Politics, coming your way Friday morning. 1400 Clearwater, 107.1 Shuswap from CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM, local news now.